Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com edup and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education. Today, we do like to have a little fun along the way, and I'm laughing. You made me laugh, Liz, because before we started this episode, yeah, we're, t- we're talking about microphones, and I'm literally now, as I'm doing this intro, in my head, I'm doing the intro, and I'm looking at to see how far my lips are away from the microphone to know whether this sounds good or not. And I have no idea. So I'm like moving back in and out. In and Is out. your microphone plugged in? Cause you know, that was an issue that Elvin. Oh, that's a good question. Let me see. Yes, it is. It okay. is plugged in. Perfect. Yeah. I don't know if, how it's going to sound. I, I will tell you, I'm very excited, Liz. It is, it's, it's rare. I don't want to say it's rare, but I'm, I'm excited when we have a guest that excites me from the minute we meet them before yes. we even start the episode. And I'm like, great oh, energy, great energy. Very, very great energy. And, and we need that, Liz. We, yeah. we, we thrive off that energy. At least Absolutely. I do. I don't know about you. Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. It's a big thing. Cause I, I think like you said, with education, sometimes we tend to be very serious and we like to keep it lighthearted. So we have a guest that has that great sense of humor and energy. So I like that. Well, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, do you like that buildup? I feel like we've given him an, it's like a <laughs> WWE entrance. I yes. feel like entrance music should play or something. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Oh boy, Liz. Let's not do that again. <laughs> okay. Uh, I won't do that again. <laughs> Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Baston. He's president of Rockland Community College. Michael, how you doing? Great, Joe, Liz. Thank you all for having me on today. Really excited to be with you. Are you as excited after hearing Liz sing for you or less excited? <laughs> at, at least, at least Liz didn't go. I would never do that. I do that for Joe all the time. Liz likes to maintain a level of, yeah, I know. Seriously, Joe, Liz, give Joe me. gets that. I do. Well, we're excited to have you, Michael. Your, your uh, energy is just off the charts already. Yes. We're, we're, we're honored that you join us. And we've got lots and lots of questions for you, but I do want to just say a congratulations to you. Um, if, uh, if you could, I believe, and you can clarify if I'm wrong here, but I don't think I am. You are an American Association of Community Colleges uh, board finalist, are you not, for choice uh, to be on the board? I am a finalist. I am one of the finalists, yes. Well, uh, talk about that. What, you know, how excited are you? What that will mean to you if you win and 
and, uh, you know, give us the once over. Well, I'm very excited about the opportunity to serve the more than 1,100 community colleges in the country as one of those representative voices. We don't really have enough folks understanding the importance and the power of community colleges, but they will know now as we continue to move in the higher education landscape and as America starts to hit the reset button. So I'm excited. And if, if I, if elected, I will serve faithfully to the best of my ability. <laughs> Vote for Michael. Vote for Michael, ladies and gentlemen. What, let's let's dig into that a, a little bit because, and uh, I'm not telling any uh, you anything you don't know, but but we know here at the Edip Experience, as we've uh, come across amazing community college leaders, that community colleges sometimes get a bad rap. Uh, not not a I want to say a bad rap, but uh, the perception in community colleges being a you know like a catch all if students weren't going to a four year. Um, you know, not uh, having great student services or just not having a voice, a loud voice in the conversation of higher education. I think that has been changing. And we've come across amazing folks like yourself doing amazing things at community colleges. Why do you think that stigma has existed and what's being done to change it? Well, those who tell the story are the ones for whom the story is distributed. So if you have a lot of people who didn't go to community college decide to tell higher education's narrative, you're not going to hear a lot of stories about us. If you have folks who actually own the fact that they started in a community college and begin to bring that to the forefront beyond the other credentials that they may have, then you'll get more of the stories of hope, aspiration, inspiration that happen. But what I have found is that they, there is sort of this caste system uh, and that has been created through transfer policies that are articulate transfer articulation policies that have been created in a whole myriad of ways. And so I think what the country understands now is that the community college continues to become the college of first choice for families who want their young person to get a quality education at a price they can afford. And that's the difference. But who tells the story is the critical partner of who gets the story out. I heard the title of the episode in there somewhere, Liz. I, I got to see if I brought it back up. Uh, community colleges are the college of first choice are becoming the college of first choice, which is a really interesting way to, to hear it, Liz. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it, it speaks to the heart of the purpose of the community college. I look at the community college as the resource and as a place that can really serve as a hub for underserved communities, for communities that you know, need uh, additional resources. So I definitely would love to hear Dr. Basson talk about this idea of some of the things that he's doing on his campus, ways of creating community. I see that there have been a series of, of different events on the campus and, and different things that you're doing as far as for the Latina, Latinx community, um, some of the initiatives that you're having in terms of diversity. How have you managed to serve the community? And what are the, some of the things that you would I guess, recommend as far as strategies for all of us across the sector to be more ingrained. I think the sense of community and how we can as a sector serve those that are our students and those uh, the communities that they actually come from is something that we're thinking about as far as some of the bigger schools, the state schools, even the, the small private schools, liberal arts, career colleges. But 
the community colleges, I think, have it a little bit more down to a science because they've been doing it for so long. What are some of the recommendations or strategies that you have for that? I think meeting students at their level of preparation is what we are particularly good at. We actually educate the top 100%. What that means is that we're going to provide the support according to the need of the person that comes in the door. And so if you need more in the way of some formative support, we're going to provide that support for you. Uh, but one of the things that I think we're doing particularly well, particularly over these last five to 10 years, is really developing these what we call guided pathways. How we're helping students engage at the beginning of their educational journey in the kind of career exploration and the career development process so that they can get on an academic program or a path that then when monitored and supported, they can complete and move into not just uh, other institutions, transfer institutions, but for many, the world of work in, in jobs that pay a family supporting wage. So it's very important for us not to build bridges to nowhere. It doesn't help me if I have a person who's in poverty to get in an academic program that's going to keep them in poverty. That makes no sense. So we really are looking to develop the kind of academic programs that are linked to destinations and experiences that make achieving that destination possible. What does your economic situation in your region call for? What kinds of professionals are being called for in your region? And how are you ensuring that the educational experience, the classroom learning is 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 sort of um, melded with out of the classroom experiences so that those students are competitive in the environment that they would be able to get to so it is very important for us to recognize that our colleges are models of this new higher level integration with community-based organizations and the business and industry folks Talk to us about partnerships, because I think you hit the nail on the head as far as that integration and being a part of the community in that you're preparing students for a lifelong learning journey, and you want to make sure that you're preparing them to go into careers to be effective and making sure that they have the proper skill sets and they have the proper support and scaffolding to be able to do that. How do those partnerships with the community, whereas you're partnering with, uh, where you have those workforce partnerships, as well as even reaching back and partnering with like the high schools, how does all that fit together? And what are some of the strategies that you feel like have been effective with creating those meaningful partnerships? Just think about the K to 12 partnership as an example of how we work to develop, you know, a school of STEM in the community college that is connected to the PTEC, which is the high school program that prepares students of color, mostly first generation, mostly students who would not see a career in the sciences as an option for them, that we could, we could partner with that local PTEC, that we could then bring those students, not only with their high school diploma, but also half of their college associate degree, and in some cases, the full associate degree, and then bring them into a four-year institution, into the School of Science, Engineering, Technology, in a four-year so that they can get the high-wage, high-opportunity jobs in the pharmaceutical industries or other industries within the region. Because in my region, we have a lot of pharmaceutical companies, and in our region, we do have labs and so on and so forth. So it is that kind of very intentional 
connections, looking at sort of the equitable realities of your community. You know, my P-TECH is in a community where there's a lot of financial fragility for the people to get the students who are like sort of the ones that most people didn't think could, turning them on to science and then bringing them into our school of, of STEM and then getting them into that four-year opportunity or right into Pfizer or other places where they can start to work at a, at a, a sort of a rung on the ladder, knowing that further education will get them to climb higher and higher levels of the ladder. So we can't speak in abstract terms. We have to speak in very real, concrete terms. And that is an example of how institutions who are really forward thinking can look at a, con a community issue, which is in this case, poverty, you know, and those who are, are, not, are poverty, but also high wage opportunities. How do you build a bridge between those two chasms, between that chasm? Let's talk about college prep a little bit because you, you said college prep three or four times and. Mm -hmm in there and college preparation is is a real deal there there's mm -hmm. a, a lot of kids coming out of high school lower income first gen uh students of color any student for that matter and they attempt college in one way or another community college sometimes private university and they and they are not successful and, and whether it's writing skills whether it's self-efficacy it, it, there's a myriad of reasons why a student doesn't succeed in college. How big of a focus do you put on college prep? And what are the problems? What Not problems, but what are the opportunity gaps for students when they're not really ready? And how do you get them ready? Well, part of it is recognizing the importance of dual enrollment opportunities. The fact is, unfortunately, dual enrollment is not always an equitable proposition. So you have high performing folks who probably are the better sort of supported who get into these dual enrollment programs. And so they graduate high school and they're halfway through a college degree. But you have low income uh, folks who could benefit from dual enrollment programs to build the skill levels while they're in high school to do college level work. And these programs exist, but ultimately we are not getting enough people of color to get involved in those kinds of programs that provide then the additional support to those in the high school so that they can actually make momentum toward a future that they deserve. And so I think dual enrollment is one of the ways in which equitable dual enrollment is one of the ways that we have to think about this in very intentional ways. We also have to think about the possibility of boot camps and how we get people into the pipeline who are from the K-12 system. But we can't stop at K-12 because we have a lot of folks who have some college and no degree. We have a lot of folks who had an industry before the pandemic whose industry is no longer in existence and they need to get a job. Well, how are they going to get back into the stream of opportunity if they've been out of college for 20 years or 15 years or only picked up a few credits? Well, how are we engaging them in credit for prior learning? How are we doing those? They have experienced things that they should be able to get some kind of credit for that then could get them into a shorter term credentials or get them back into college in, in a flexible 
kind of arrangement so that they have a chance to change the trajectory of their life as well. So I think that we spend a lot of time focusing on K to 12, which is important, but we also must understand that there's a whole landscape of opportunity and we've got to be thinking about how we engage everyone in this ecosystem of opportunity in terms of higher education. That's a really important distinction and I'm glad you said that because there's a big difference between the high school student that's getting prepared for college and the 50-year-old who lost their job due to the pandemic or other reasons that wants to go back to school to to build other skills so that they can go on to their new career, right? Mid-career switchers or uh, people that are are looking to, you know, advance or get a new career. There's a big difference between the K through 12 and the the quote-unquote some college no degree. The some college no degree, it's like 8 million students out there Mm -hmm. that have some college credit and no degree. It's a huge market. Mm-hmm. And those folks are sometimes scared to even dip their toe back into college, whether it's fit, whether it's, um, you know, a feeling of failure of not fitting in. And, you know, being able to tap into that market is a huge opportunity for our community colleges in general. Do you agree? Absolutely. And this is where credit for prior learning <clears throat> to specifically addresses this idea of, of feeling like a failure, feeling like, well, you were not in college and you did clearly succeed because you were able to get yourself gainfully employed and your life, something in your life happened to you. And that's why you're not working. Well, guess what? We're going to give you credit for what you did learn while you were out away from us you know, away from the college, and we're going to create an environment where having you to come back so that you can get to the next place in your life is not something to be looking down on, but something that should be an aspirational hope for all. I I liken this to Liz podcasting. Liz, you, I I had to give you credit Uh for your prior learning as an English teacher, (laughs) figuring that if you could teach somebody English, which, you know, English comp, uh, which right. you know, most of us, <laughs> most people are going to struggle with putting all of those sentences together. Then you right. got to be a good podcaster. I, I just thought, you know, <laughs> well, let me give you the credit for your part. Absolutely. And you said that you had a BS in communications. <laughs> BS. <laughs> this this is this, not only is that a true story. It's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. This is absolutely a true story. I have a BS in speech communication. So, if there I, was some, <laughs> some a complete, literally, literally a BS in BSing, I I am one of the folks that has it. And I want to to to, to really drill down on that. I want to talk to Doctor Bathon about this idea of how we can, and he's alluded to this a couple of times already. But I want to drill down some more on as a sector. I think that the community colleges are uniquely positioned and tend to do the best job of pivoting and being able to roll out. And and Joe knows about this as well. And you all are the administrators. I'm just a lowly faculty member. So I'm not as well versed in how I don't know about a lowly faculty (laughs) member, Liz. 40,000 LinkedIn followers. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know about that, Liz. I heard you got to even your own academy. So I I ain't ain't going for that too much. Go ahead. Agreed. Here's the thing that I don't understand. And perhaps because I'm not, you know, involved with these conversations, but I always tend to feel as though if there are programs such as social justice, um, environmental sustainability, there's all these different things that students are now pivoting to and saying, hey, I want to know how to do that. Whether it's, you know, something in the healthcare field, there's all kinds of things that over time, you know, and sometimes a very short time become a hot career that we have to pivot and try to 
create pathways, like Dr. Bassan talked about, create pathways to, to get our students up and ready to be able to be skilled, especially now with the pandemic, upskilling, reskilling. What are some of the things that we can do to be more responsive so that we can quickly get our students to hit the ground running? We talk about the idea of these boot camps or certificate programs, but why is it that as a sector, we're just not doing that as I think effectively or efficiently or as widespread as we can so that we can get students like out the door so that they can provide for their families. I just always wonder that something that always confuses me. I think there's several things at play. First and foremost, the federal government does not provide short-term Pell. So even if you had the shorter-term credential that ultimately would give somebody access to the world of work to get into hot fields, they can't afford them. Particularly if you're a student that comes to the community college for many, not all, but for many, you know, there are there could be some economic fragility issues. You may not have a whole lot of money, but you're able to come to the community college, but only if you go full time. Well, if you go full time and you have a family and you got to work, you got to take care. Can you really go full time? So that's why so many students who come to the community college go part time, but you're only going to get part time pal. And if you're going for the shorter term credential that can get you right into the workforce and ultimately get you a higher wage, well, the federal government doesn't support that from a financial aid perspective. And so if poor people who could have access to programs that are shorter term that lead them to a family supporting wage and then allow them to come back into at a later point in their journey, uh, the longer term credential that would lead them to even higher wages, that would make a huge difference. But right now they don't. And so that is why you get a lot of people who have, you know, this sort of question mark about how to move this forward. So what do colleges do in light of the fact that you can't do the short term value, you can't often provide the money for students to get these shorter term credentials? Well, we provide micro credentials. We try to embed within the academic program the uh, additional credentials that would make them employable if they had to stop out. You can embed it through the co-curriculum. So you can actually make sure that students get access to experiences that be, becomes a part of their co-curricular transcript or they can get digital badges, but some way to document that they got some skills by doing the things that matter to them and that matter in the, in the economic sphere. And then there are also, of course, internships, another place to think about how do students get the kind kinds of experiences that give them a competitive advantage as they move forward in their lives. So there is an, a federal response that we need to see uh, addressed, but there are also things that institutions can do to put their students in the best possible position to move forward. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether it, your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, 
Whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. MDTmarketing.com slash add up. Where's the, where's the Excelsior scholarship fall in, in that discussion? How's that going? You know, is it something that you see interest in still? Is it, is it, is it still actively being sought out? Right now, as you know, all of the sort of promise-like programs are under the strain of the economic challenges that, uh, that institutions are given COVID. And so the future of programs like Excelsior and other promise programs around the country, quite frankly, uh, will be dependent in part on the work that is done in Washington. And I think that the American Rescue Act, the, the CARES Act funds, those are meaningful ways to help support and sustain those kinds of programs that give access to opportunity. But once again, we are still watching how the country will reemerge in a post-pandemic environment. And so, you know, I, of course, support promise programs that say, hey, if you come and you put time in that you can actually get the support of your community econ economically because we know you're going to be a support to your community economically. And I think that we've got to do everything that we can to invest in our, our nation and its people. The truth is, the better their folks are educated, the more innovative they can become, the more money they can make that they can contribute to the society so that other people will have future opportunities. And that's what makes the country competitive. Liz, I think I blocked you from coming in with a, with a response to what you were saying before. So go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I'm glad that you asked that question. And I think another question that comes to mind is, and I don't know if this is maybe rhetorical and, and another thing that just I'm always curious about. And Dr. Vassal makes me, um, he just has this very warm and just like engaging uh, conversation that's going here. So it just makes me all these questions I always think about when it comes to community college, they're all coming to mind now. So I'm like, maybe Dr. Vassal can help me with this because I'm always <laughs> confused about this. Let me ask this question that I'm usually embarrassed to really talk about. But how can we get the messaging out there? Because this is something that I've thought about ever since I was very young in my own community of the community college being something that's not like... The 13th grade, that's what you think? No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I was trying to think of a way... You like the 13th grade? They right. think of the 13th grade. You know, like people kind of say, oh, you're going to community. It's almost like it's like, oh, you know, that's not what you want. But you know what? With my daughter, she's 22. Mm -hmm. I wanted her to go to my alma mater, which was University of Florida. And she was just like, she didn't even want to visit the campus. She's like, I'm not doing that. I don't want to go to a big school. And literally her first, first choice was community college. And as a parent that went to a huge state school, went to football games, had the whole college experience, I initially was disappointed. I'm like, you're 4.0 grade point average, amazingly smart. Why don't you go to a huge school, have the full college experience? But she was like, mom, I don't want that. I want to go to a small school. I don't want to be on campus. I want to live at home. She's actually living in Jacksonville now at her dad's and she loves her community college. Mm -hmm. How can we get parents and students to understand and get that messaging out there that for a lot of students at community college, even if they're high achievers, they don't even necessarily have to be you know, just a, a, a single mom or someone that's working, sometimes a traditional age student, and even if they're a high achieving student, the best place for them can be the community college. And she's thriving there, you know? Well, I have to tell you, the issue is less students and more parents. Mm. You all parents, I'm gonna point to you now, Liz, not you, <laughs> but, I, but you parents like, like to go to the um, cookout in the summer to tell your friends where yeah. 
Johnny and Janie are going off to school make put the pressure on them to go places that are not necessarily good for them for your friends but for those young people they do need a place that has smaller class sizes and they do particularly if some parents are requiring the student to pay for their own college Mm -hmm. many of the students particularly the millennials and even the centennials that are coming behind them those students are actually going to be thinking about how they can get credit while they're in high school so that they don't have to pay big bills how they can get in honors programs so that they could get to the higher tier colleges without the higher tier college price. So, and then you think about the fact that more than 40% of the folks that are baccalaureate students started at a community college. So what happens is that parents don't really recognize how many of your neighbor's children actually started at the community college. So, so I think that, you know, that we got to get the message out to parents, not so much to students, because more and more students are making the community college the college of choice because they don't want the loans because their friends are they because they took the classes in high school and now can complete quicker like the students are starting to see the value of the value proposition in ways that the parents haven't caught up with to be honest get with the program Liz come on yeah no it's a great point and I and I and it's a salient one because I think my daughter literally put her foot down and she's like I'm not doing it like I'm going to community college and like you said a lot of the time a part of her decision making was as well like I don't want to be taking out student loans I don't want to be mm-hmm. doing all this I'm not even really sure what my major is going to be it wasn't mm-hmm. so maybe halfway through her maybe I think in her sophomore year was when she decided that she was going to go into the computer sciences area but she was undecided and she's like, I'm not going to go to a state school. I'm not going to just be on campus without having a clear direction. I would rather start at the community college. And I think you're right. I think parents are having to take a step back because these students are a lot more self-directed. I think for most of us, and Joe probably knows this, it was kind of like, well, you're going to, you're going to go away to school, just figure it out when you get there. And I think this generation student is, uh, as you said, a lot more focused on like, I have an end goal and I want to minimize my debt and make sure that I have a clear sense of direction before I just start racking up a whole bunch of student loans. So young people don't want to be told what to think. They don't mind being told how to think about solving something, but they don't want to be told what to think. And you will always get pushback from young people. If you take the position that you're going to tell them what to think. (laughs) Liz also doesn't like to be told what to think, do you, Elizabeth? I try to tell her. <laughs> yeah, you try to do I try it to all tell the time. her and she just doesn't, doesn't listen. Work. It doesn't work. Listen. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's difficult. It's like a push and pull here, but you know, we're, we're, we're working through. We're working through it, right? A little at a time, little at a time. <laughs> every, every day is an adventure. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Michael, what, what, what's the, what are the students telling you right now um, with their their actions. They want to come back uh, camp to campus as much as possible. They want as many online classes as possible. They want a hybrid experience. What are they telling you with their decision making? I mean, the bottom line is the reason why a lot of our students come to community colleges because they don't want a correspondence course. And so, you know, for those folks who say, oh, well, you know, you got to, we have to offer everything online now all the time. You know, a lot of people who come to the community college, that's not the modality that they want. They want to be in a smaller class 
where they could talk to people, that they can have a relationship with their teacher, that they can have a relationship with their peers. They don't want to study at home because many of them can't study at home. So they need to be in a study space and in a, an environment that's conducive to focusing on the task at hand when they're in school. And so what we're seeing is that some of the students have said, I'll come back when you come back. So you see that some of the declines in enrollment across the spectrum say, well, some people are saying we'll come back when you come back. So our hope is that the more people can get vaccinated, the more people can, you know, maintaining the appropriate, uh, uh, you know, prerogatives, making sure that you're taking care of yourself, washing your hands and wearing masks and so on and so forth. The way that we stop the spread of the disease and get people back on campus I think you will see more people heading back to the community college. Now that is now some are not afraid of being in the virtual environment. So I think more students might want a hybrid experience so that they can pick the classes that they want to be in in a virtual environment such that it comports with their work or life schedule. But I think still the majority of the community college students will want to be in that face-to-face, -face, small class, communal setting where they have a sense of place within that environment. One of the things I, I've asked, um, I, I think recently, at least the community college leaders that we've had here on the podcast is about that, you know, 10% plus enrollment decline across community colleges uh, sure. in our nation. And how many of those students, you know, and you look at the scenarios, right? Uh, you know, family loses jobs, student has to go to work instead of being able to continue with their studies. Or, you know, maybe it's choosing between hunger and school. I mean, there's a, a, a really a ton of reasons why students may not have come back, right? Kids online school don't have the time. There's a lot of reasons. How many of those students might slip through the cracks? And how do we as leaders in higher education, particularly those in community colleges, get those students back? How do you re-engage that student that is not coming back because of these life circumstances that really were unplanned, right? Uh, none of us planned for the circumstances around us. And that's a big, I'd say that's a big goal of our time as administrators and US higher education is to re-engage that population that was here that needs to come back. Well, you have to remember, it's not just that population that was here needs to come back. The same situation is happening in high schools. Right. Remember yeah, exactly. that those high schools are the, the, this is not, this is a protracted problem. It is not a problem that is uh, unique to community colleges or colleges in general. In the high schools, this has been one of the most trying years, a set of years for those who are trying to complete their high school education. And so how many of them have dropped out in the process of all of, of what, how many of them have been, uh, their, their sort of educational sort of development has been, growth development has been stunted by the ways in which all of this has taken place. Lots of dissertations so we, will be done in the next 10 years about this, right? You, it's so true. So we've got a larger issue. We've got to really partner very carefully with our K to 12 partners. We have to partner very carefully with business and industry so that as business and industry hits the reset button on the opportunities of the future, that, that 
we don't now drop folks who've dropped out of our our, our parts of the system, whether it's K to twelve or or, or or the community college or even a four year institution, that that they don't now get sucked into a new caste system, a sucked into a new caste system of low paying, low wage, low opportunity jobs that arose as a result of the pandemic. So that the gig economy doesn't sort of sweep them in the undertow, if you will. And so that is how we have to be able to keep our, our focus on, you know, how are we making sure and working with our business and industry partners that they're not just going to bring an army of people who will now become a permanent underclass as a result of the economic shifts due in part to the pandemic. So I think it's going to be incumbent on all of us to look at these very important collaborations between business and industry and K to 12 and, and, and community colleges and the four-year institutions so that we think about pathways and strengthening and hardwiring opportunities that don't create new levels of permanent poverty. And, and thinking about those underserved students and students that, like you said, is happening here in Palm Beach County where they're saying mm -hmm. students have just disappeared. We don't know where these students are. We don't know what's happening, but we just know that enrollment is lower. And a lot of these students are coming from environments where, like you said, there's so many different, um, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's housing insecurity, there's so many things that are contributing to students not necessarily being able to uh, be able to focus on school and the same thing happens and then that pathway is not created for them to go on to the next level your school is very diverse there's mm -hmm. there's a, a good mix of types of student demographic of student yeah. part-time versus full-time white um students of color whether it be black and other um latinx students mm -hmm. what do you say are some of the things in particular because i think one of the things that typically surprises people about k-12 through and the pathway from k-12 through to higher ed is that people don't realize just how marginalized a lot of students' environments are that they're coming from and that equal education is not available across the K through 12 sector. So we have to be more mindful as the students are coming in from all these different diverse populations. What are some of the things that you've done on your campus to support and, and particularly these types of students that are coming from diverse or typically marginalized first generation environments to make sure that they are going to be successful? What are some tips and strategies that you would give those in the sector that might not necessarily understand that? Well, one, one very important thing is working with the superintendents. You know, because we recognize that that the challenges they have are our challenges too, and not deciding that that's their problem. It's our collective opportunity to really become much more uh, seamless in our work together uh, to keep the the students within a pipeline of opportunity. So I think that is extraordinarily important to work with superintendents in your community. I think one of the other things is to engage in the kind of comprehensive virtual support services that students need. Uh, we, before the pandemic, we didn't have 24-hour tutoring center. We didn't have 24-hour mental health. We didn't have virtual testing centers. We didn't have, you know, academic and career advisement in a significant way in virtual environments. We, we didn't have any of these sorts of things. And now as a result of the pandemic, not only do we have them, but they will remain with us long after the pandemic is gone. That provides 
a demonstrable support to these populations that you're talking about who can't necessarily engage in support services between nine and five, who ultimately don't have the luxury of turning on their camera in their home while the class is going on because they do have to make sure that dinner is getting cooked and your child's homework is getting checked while your uh, spouse is trying to do the work that they have to do while you still need to do your school work and do the job that you have and you working in a remote environment too with one laptop. So it's all of those kinds of things that we gotta be thinking about in terms of how do we reset expectations around a more 24-7 on-demand kind of support, access to support structure. I think that is going to be very, very important. And then, of course, you have to make sure that you have your folks with the kind of professional development that enables them to teach in different modalities. You have to have the, the electronic capability, the, the bandwidth, if you will, to provide the support of access in real and meaningful ways. And that has to be irrespective of whether you're in urban areas, suburban areas, or rural areas. How are you looking at, uh, as we're getting down uh, close to time, we don't want to keep you forever, but how are you looking at facilities and financial models? You know, you've, you've got a, a big campus. You've been in Rockland County, the, the main resource in Rockland County for forever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do you look at facilities and go, you know, if we have hybrid learning, we've got too many facilities, not enough facility. And, and you know, what does that do, or if anything, to your financial model plans? Well, ultimately, what we should be thinking about is how do we use what we have in more uh, effective ways? And how do we partner if there are others that can participate in the utilization of facilities and gain a financial uh, opportunity for both groups? And so we are very, very careful about, you know, we had already had uh, space challenges before. We're not going to put everybody in the virtual environment uh, as a means of freeing up space because, as I say, for many community college students, the correspondence course model doesn't work for them. So we need to be thinking, however, about different kind of scheduling. We have to think about, you know, how does the schedule control the way in which we utilize the physical infrastructure? And I think that what this pandemic has done for us is to say that the traditional notions of, of the Carnegie Hour and how you use it in the schedule and how it's used, you know, all of that stuff goes out the window. There are no snow days anymore for us. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? That's it's crazy to think I about. Almost no days. So, 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 so we can be a little bit more creative than we have been because we've been bound by rules that we were able to see through this experience should be now no longer sort of those what I would call those gatekeeper moments of innovation. I don't want to be a gatekeeper. I don't want innovation to be blocked by gatekeepers. I want to innovation to be spread through us being a gateway for opportunity. By the way, Liz, have, not having snow days in New York is kind of like not having the sunshine in Florida. It's, I mean, just, <laughs> it, it, it's like a real thing. You, you know, and now it's not real. It's, it's a myth. You're going to look back 20 years from now when you talk to your kids. You remember, you, you know, the story, Michael, I walked, you know, 15 miles in the snow in my beard. Of course, that's going now. Now it's going to be, I used to, used, I used to have snow days that would stay home and, <laughs> 
kids are going to look at these parents and go, what are you talking about? I can do, I can, you know, I'm doing my school on my, my watch now, you know? Exactly. I mean, it speaks to how we're reimagining education. You talked about your son looking at the iPod and saying, Alexa. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I told the story yesterday. My, my son, he's, we, you know, remember the old iPod with the dial? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and it went into it went into this radio docking station, and then you know it it plays music, and you know I don't know how old it is, maybe ten years, fifteen years old, and uh, he's sitting there going, Alexa, play play the party. Alexa is what he called. Alexa, play the party freeze dance song. <laughs> nothing's so happening, and he's screaming, Aww. Alexa, Alexa. <laughs> his hands are at his side. He's not touching it. He's just staring at it, screaming, yeah. Alexa. Right. The times are changing. <laughs> I love changing. it. I love it. I love it. Liz, take us home. Well, we appreciate your time. This has been a ball. We've really enjoyed speaking with you. We know that you're really busy. So this has been definitely a pleasure for us to hear some of these gems of wisdom. And you've dropped a lot of knowledge for us today. So we definitely truly appreciate everything that you've shared. We want to be uh, sensitive to your time. We know that you're busy. So we want to wrap up with the last couple of questions which would be just if there's anything that we miss, anything that you want to talk about, about initiatives or goals or anything that you want to leave our listeners with about what you're doing there at Rockland Community College. And the last question other than that would be, what do you see as the future for higher education? Well, thank, well, first, let me say thank you to both you, Liz, and Joe for a wonderful time together. I'm really inspired by some of the work that you're doing, Liz, particularly with uh, the Black History Month uh, work that you're doing. Thank We've you. engaged in what we call steps beyond statements, and we are very, very leaning very, very far in to ensure that we address structural racism through educational transformation. How do we use education to challenge unconscious bias, to undo, sort of to challenge the unchallenged narratives uh, in higher education and in society in general. And I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, we are improving our employee experience and doing it with an equity lens by gathering people into the conversation and giving people a voice so that they can make our institution strong. I encourage all educational institutions to look at their practices and determine what equitable reforms need to take place. Because when we as institutions make part of our mission, preparing those citizen, educated citizens, we then will see how our world can get better, how our world can get brighter, how we can have a much more just union. And so I believe it's incumbent upon every educator to participate in helping our country get moving in the direction of appropriate uh, equitable outcomes for all students. And I hope that that is a future we all believe in and will work hard to secure. Well, I'm glad Elizabeth has inspired you so much, Michael. Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. Please, is, please don't embarrass yourself and ask him who's his favorite host. I'm not going to. It's already it's it's already in. Uh, but she she is inspiring, and in the you Thank called you. it the steps. Uh, say it again. The steps beyond steps statements. beyond statements. I mean, it's that's great. a great way to summarize. I think Absolutely. where we are, right, Liz? Absolutely. What we need to do. Love it. Yeah, and, and Michael, this has a, a, been a masterclass. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate your time. 
and uh, and attention, and we're going to follow you and and champion your work uh, because we 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 love with what you're doing. And this has been another episode of the Edip Experience with Dr. Michael Bastin, and he is president of Rockland Community College. Michael, thank you. Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edip Experience. To learn more about the Edip Experience, please visit our website at www.edipexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edip Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edip Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.